Work is no longer just about productivity and metrics. It's about people. And when we focus on positivity, communication, belonging, and development, the numbers take care of themselves. This is Work Human Radio, where we talk to authors, researchers, and business leaders about the latest trends making work more human around the world. Here's your host, Mike Wood. Hey, everyone. It's Steve Pemberton again, Chief Human Resource Officer at Work Human. And today, I'm pleased to welcome Sarah Morgan to our Keeping Work Human series. Sarah is the Chief Excellence Officer of Buzzaroony LLC, a leadership management and human resources consulting boutique. Her insightful work in the HR industry is shaping the future of the workplace. Sarah, thanks for joining us. How are you? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Where are we uh, connecting? Where in the world are you? I am in Raleigh, Durham area in North Carolina. So in the Americas in North Carolina. Ah, how's the family? The family is good. Busy, despite the fact that we've got, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We have a house full of tweens. We got a tween and three teens and a college ager. So they are keeping us wrangling them and trying to make sure they don't eat us out of house and home. But, you know, their activities and some of that stuff is still going on. So we're finding a little bit of normalcy and also some fun family time together. So it's weird, but we're finding ways to thrive. And that's the good news. Yes, yes. Well, I want to focus more on the professional front. Tell us a little bit more about the work you do at Buzzaroonie and tell me a bit about the name as well. Yeah, so Buzzaroonie was my nickname when I was a child. My dad called me Buzz. He thought that I was a nosy. <laughs> I, was always buzzing, I was buzzing around. I was into a lot of stuff. And he would just say, so you're just a little buzzer He passed away in 2016. And so when I decided to name my company, I, I named it buzzer to honor him and also to honor myself and my, my legacy of curiosity. I like to say I'm not nosy. I'm just curious. Um, I just want to know what's going on. So that's been continuing, you know, with that. But I started the company in 2018 really to make official what I have been doing since 2011 and on my blog, The Buzz on HR. I've been writing about human resources and management and leadership. And I was starting to get more speaking engagements and more paid writing opportunities. And I was starting to do some dabbling in consulting over those years. And I needed to pay taxes and get official. So I made it, made my LLC and transitioned into that kind of entrepreneurship. I still work a full-time human resources job as an executive for a national retail services organization. So I oversee the HR function for five divisions, but the LLC was the right move for me. And I'm now working with small and mid-sized businesses, startups and growing businesses to help them to establish inclusive and equitable workplace cultures. I also work with HR professionals as a coach Um, I coach them on how to make equity and inclusion in their own organizations. And then I work with women on leveling up their careers and balancing work and life and integrating all of that. So how many of there are you? 
because that's just just me. Yeah, it's just me. You know, time management, man, is the thing. I have a wonderful team around me, including a great therapist and a great coach and a wonderful husband. Like my husband is the best. He's such a good dad and he's such a supportive partner that he makes it easy for me to be able to do all of this stuff, like he holds it down so that I can pursue my dreams. And that's amazing. But, you know, I've got a support squad and we all got to have one. You have one. So, you know, we all got to have one. And that's how I make it all work. And everything else is just schedule and choice. That's it. Yeah. Well, I want to ask a bit about what's been a particular focus for you uh, that has taken on increased significance in light of a lot of conversations we're having about bias, uh, racism, harassment, and microaggressions in the workplace. So tell me a bit more about you know that work and why is it so important for organizations to understand microaggressions today? I stumbled across, and I wish I had gone back and written down, but I stumbled across a book about microaggressions a few years ago, and it really struck something in me. And I thought to myself, and I was reading it in, in the context of research type of work. You know, it was a psychology brief type of work, but it struck me as this is what is happening in our workplaces. And more to that, it's the foundation of what becomes bullying and harassment and discrimination. And so when these kind of major issues happen, they always start out as something small. It's an offhanded joke. It's a comment about someone's appearance. And then we don't check that. We don't say anything to the person about it. And that aggressor at that point starts to get emboldened and they feel empowered because no one's addressed it. And so it continues and it continues to get bigger and bigger until it becomes a huge issue within your workplace. And the other thing about microaggressions that we have to recognize, and I think is important in recognizing that they're often unintentional and that's what can make microaggressions very tricky to deal with. And I think workplaces have been reluctant to add that to something that they train about and something that they have, you know, policy around how to address because of the unintentional nature of them. But I'm really pushing towards us being more intentional and proactive in addressing it because it is where all the rest of the issues start. And if you can check someone and say, hey, we don't do that here when they start in the moment and say, "Mm -mm, don't say that. Or you pull them to the side after the meeting and say, that was offensive. And let me explain to you why you as the leader do that. If we can start to do those sorts of things and we cut that off at the path and the people who aren't willing to behave that way, they find their way out because they have no place, you know, in that moment. And then we can start to really shift culture. I want to make sure that I point out, you know, microaggressions come in kind of three flavors. And so I think it's important. I've jokingly called them chocolate, vanilla and strawberry. But you've got micro assaults. Now, I will say that micro assaults, those are slurs and like 
displays of symbols with problematic history or that we know have common derogatory meanings. And it's hard for me to accept that as micro, even though we describe it that way. And it's also hard for me to accept that as unintentional. I think that, you know, you're doing something controversial when you're in a micro assault kind of territory, but then you have micro insults, which are more of that rudeness or implying negative attributes to somebody based on their belonging to a certain group. So that's like your stereotyping. You know, that's what we think of when we think of micro insults. And then you have micro invalidations, which is telling someone who believes that they've been microaggressed that they really weren't or that their hardship doesn't exist. You know, you invalidate their experience. And that's probably the worst of them because it's like a one-two punch. Like not only was I microaggressed, but now you've invalidated my experience. So I'm doubly hurt, you know, in that moment. And when I go through that and explain that to people in trainings, boom, like they get it. People are smart, you know, and they understand. I don't even have to give specific examples. I can just speak to this is what that looks like. And the light bulbs go on. And so I think we have to, as leaders, recognize that our people know, our people know what the right thing is and they know what the wrong thing is. And we've got to give them credit for that. And we've got to hold them accountable to be their higher, like best version of themselves. Quite a lot to unpack there. And yeah, yeah. it's helpful in a few ways. I think you underscoring the importance of addressing it when it happens, when it initially happens, mm-hmm. is critical because I've always likened it, Sarah, to the beanstalk. And if you dealt with it when it was a seed, it would not become this entanglement that ultimately it becomes. And I can think of quite a few times in my career, and I've seen this multiple places. One memorable time was when I professional capacity and somebody who he was a direct report of mine. And his microaggression was the way he was leering at a woman in the workplace. But cognizant of what he was doing and knew, and I who was his boss, and he knew that I knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like this kind of like, I think he thought that he was playing into some kind of code amongst men. This is kind of some moment. Yeah. 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 Now she was none the wiser. She had no idea he was doing that, but I knew certainly. Yeah. And it was, you know, an opportunity in that moment, because that's what happened right in that moment. And let's just say it was a very direct discussion. Yeah. And as a leader, that's so important when we recognize things, because sometimes it is what happens when the person isn't even in the room. They may never know that the comment was made about them or you may catch like you did. You may catch someone looking strangely or whatever and you see it. And they know that you saw it. And there's, it's almost like they're daring you to say yes. something. And that for you, you got to step into your courage and do that. And also, it's like they're asking, I just want to continue on that point. It's almost in the daring, Sarah, it's almost as if they're asking your permission. Yes. As the leader. And if you say nothing, what you've just done is given them permission. Mm -hmm. And so when it now escalates in a situation like that to what becomes some of the behaviors you see around me too, and Mm -hmm. you can kind of walk it back in moments 
where how did these people believe the rules did not apply? Well, it happened in a small, seemingly innocuous, to your third point about the microaggression, was invalidated. But the offender was looking for something from the culture or from the leader in that moment and unfortunately got it, which was permission. Yeah. And the other point, too, is and even you are the leader in that moment, but there are also moments that happen where you may just be the bystander and this person is a peer. And it's just as important for you within your culture to encourage that bystander intervention, for you to encourage someone to say, don't do that. Or if they see it, that they bring it to you and they say, Steve, I observed this and it made me uncomfortable. And I wanted to bring it to your attention. And can we figure out together what to do? You got to encourage all of those steps in order to make your culture a safe place and to call out those types of behavior and drive it out either by hopefully getting that person to change and not do that anymore. Or if they're unwilling to change, exit. Because that right. we don't do here. Which is ultimately what happened with this individual. Because while that behavior stopped, others were put in its place. And I, I just came to realize that this was, in essence, when all was said and done, this is a person who had a problem with strong women. Yeah. That's what it came down to. You know, so I made a decision, ultimately. Yeah. That was, and it actually was an easy one. When you have so many Americans and others, citizens of other countries who are really reckoning with this issue of race in particular, And in an environment where we're dealing with, in George Floyd's case, that is not a microaggression, that's a macroaggression. Exactly. But it too began in other places, though there was a prior history, you know, here. And I know a lot of leaders, this is an uncomfortable topic because they see it as a really short walk from a microaggression to being called a racist. And Mm -hmm. that's a very, very uncomfortable view. They don't want to acknowledge that that microaggression has those overtones, even if they don't intend it. What are some of the things that we can do to help leaders overcome that concern, especially when they feel genuine and authentic and sincere? That is not how they are. That's not how they are. But there's a moment like a lot of moments that unfold in the workplace. You know, kind of what are the things that they could do? The first thing we have to do is get comfortable admitting that we all have bias. We are multi-layered individuals. We all have different diversity lenses that contribute to the way that we look at the world. Our race is one. Our gender identity is one. If Whether we are able And in our bodies and in our minds is another, our religion, our ethnicity, our age, education, all of those things, where you're from. We were talking in pre-show about my accent. Like I was raised in Jersey, but I've lived in the South for almost half my life now. I've got the strangest, you know, sometimes say coffee, but I also say y'all, you know, so it's all, you know, intertwined together. That's all diversity dimension. And that brings about bias. It contributes to the way that I see the world. Uh, One of the things I say in my trainings, and people always laugh at it, but I say, you got to get booed up with your bias. You need to get 
cuddly and intimate with it. You got to be curious about it and explore it and challenge yourself and challenge it to say, why, why are we thinking like this? Why do we think this way? Where did this come from? Because what's great, I took a life coach kind of course. And one of the things in the class that the instructor said that always held with me, Brooke Castillo is her name, but always held with me is that she said, the only difference between us and animals is the ability for us to think about our thoughts. So we have the ability to be able to challenge our own minds and think about, why am I thinking this? What, what is, where does this come from? And dig down into it and find if there's a truth there that we wish to hold on to or not and reject that and replace it with something that really aligns with who we are and in our integrity. I think that's the key. We have to also admit that we are built on supremacist structures. That's a reality. We've seen it, especially right now in this pandemic. One of the leading medical minds in the world is sitting before Congress talking about systemic racism. And we can't deny that anymore. And that develops into our lens. So we have to admit that about ourselves also and recognize that there may be unintentional ways in which we contribute and which we benefit from those systems. We don't have to necessarily feel guilty or bad. It doesn't make us bad people, but it's a fact. And we just have to accept that and then decide what we're going to do with that information to make our world a better place and to feel in integrity with ourselves. Great point. You know, I suspect that that's the reckoning and the conversations that are happening now. Mm -hmm. How do you build? At some point, you do have to build. You can protest. And I'd argue that protest is as American as apple pie. Yes. So we're a nation founded on protest, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were throwing tea in the harbor back in the 1700s. That's my home state of Massachusetts, where I get asked about my accent, too. Yes. Uh, And so the broader question now is, what is it that you build? So get it, you know, know what you're against. The broader question, what do you build from this that we're truly embracing of different cultures? What do you think that HR's role is in helping build that wider, broader sense of community that so many organizations are wrestling with now? Yeah, this time is so unbelievably bittersweet for human resources professionals, particularly those who have been advocates in that diversity, equity, inclusion space. And I don't even like using the word bittersweet because I don't feel like, you know, it's adequate for how heavy this moment is. This is a hard, heavy, really serious feeling moment, but there is opportunity in it for HR to shine in ways that I feel like traditionally we've been prevented from doing. A lot of HR ends up, we feel like chicken little a little bit. We're always, you know, the sky is falling. We don't do this. We're going to get sued if we don't do that. Our employees are going to leave if we don't do the other thing. We're not going to be able to attract and retain top talent. Like we're always saying these things. And now suddenly, poof, here we are. And all of that is kind of converged and exploded in this moment. And There's this like, I told you so, you know, pettiness that we feel on the inside, but we got to move past that. 
we got to get to work. And so all those plans and ideas that we had before that we put on the shelf because they got rejected because there wasn't time or there wasn't budget or we didn't think that this was the moment to do it. Here's the moment, you know, so we have to pick those things up. We got to look for ways to do that. Uh, We have talked about how we are priming our organizations for equity. I talked about that on my podcast, you know, making sure that we're creating an environment that is welcoming for people to feel like they belong and that they can show up as their whole selves, even when their whole self is sad and angry because they watched a man be lynched on video. You know, we have to leave space for that. We have to be looking at pay equity. We're still dealing with women and people of color who are not making the same money as their white male counterparts, that's still not okay. We have to, as an organization, be ready to address that. And then we got to be looking at the ways that we as an organization can pay that back and push forward. I call it workplace activism. Other people may call it corporate responsibility. Pick the word, but that's what it is. You've got what are the local organizations that you can be working with so that you're a good partner within your community? Who are your legislators and your Congress people? And are you having conversations as a business owner in that community with them to make sure that your people have affordable housing, transportation access, safe places to live, you know, all of that is your responsibility. How can you support Black vendors and businesses that are headed by marginalized individuals? Can you bank Black? Can you work with HBCUs to create internships and scholarship programs and, you know, reach down and reach back and help to filter into all of that thing? That's how we, we show our activism as organizations. And that's how we we show corporate responsibility and that's how we bring equity in, you know, the places that we occupy. So I think that that is the way forward. That's the action to your point. Like when the protests stop, what are we going to do? That's the work. And there's a lot of it to do. I mean, when, yes. when you look at it in its totality, there is a lot of work to be done. And in part, I think because we have on this matter specifically, have been very quick to declare victory. Mm -hmm. Uh, without putting in the systemic work in particular that's required, falling into the trap that because the nation elects its first African-American president, that systemic issues go away. If anything, as an African-American, there's been a long history of kind of a conditional presence in America for loss for whom your blackness is accepted when you mute it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, I think, for the first time is a willingness to see the Black experience, you know, in its totality and not just the forms of protests or even the flaws. Mm-hmm. You know, um, those conversations are essential, actually, because we are dealing with daily realities about how we are acculturated along a lot of these issues. You talked a bit about employees in particular. And so I want to talk a bit about what is this, I think we're dealing with two pandemics, one that's historic 
in racism. And then another, obviously, that is COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And we're beginning to see the enormous stress and strain that this is placing upon people, young parents, children at home, no summer camp, teaching their child, still doing their job, having Zoom fatigue, a lot of mental stress and strain. Mm-hmm. And now we're dealing as well with all of the social unrest and protests. That too is carrying a certain weight. And so I find a lot of folks are looking for reasons to believe, reasons, reasons to hope. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are the things that people can do on the matter of self-care? And then companion question to that is like, what are the things that you do? Because I know that you're incredibly busy now yeah. and you're always busy, of course, but now you're really busy because what you do is forefront of the globe. Right. What can we do? What are the things that you do to keep a peaceful mind and a hopeful spirit? Yeah, self-care is so critical right now. I had a licensed counselor on my podcast recently. We just aired the episode last week to talk about this. The difference between self-care and self-maintenance, because a lot of people feel like you can't go get your hair done. All those consumerism things that we do to take care of ourselves, the haircuts, the manis and petties, massages, you know, those sorts of things. But right now it's really about rest and taking care of your spirit. You know, our bodies physiologically know the atmosphere is different. The energy is different. Like it recognizes and responds to that and it triggers that fight or flight within us. And that's real, you know, that's happening right now because we're in a pandemic week and So everything else in our body starts to slow down because the body is conserving. It doesn't know if it's going to need to fight something off, if it's going to need to shut down completely to protect you. It doesn't know. It's preparing for all of those things. And that makes us a little less focused, a little less, you know, alert, concentration and focus. And those sorts of things are hard. I know for me, I lose words. (laughs) I talk with my hands naturally. I'm from Jersey, but I lose words. Because your brain gets foggy. So I have to be aware of that. And so I try not to overwhelm myself with tasks and projects, whereas I would normally give myself five things to do in a week. I do three. I got to dial it back a little bit because I got five kids at home and I got to make sure that they're all right. I just transitioned back into working in my office recently but when we were all at home like the wi-fi is strained um at one point in time my daughter had a home at class she almost burnt the house down i'm on a zoom call and my alarms are going off you know and i mean that's the reality of what was happening in that moment but i gotta be kind to myself and i'm like hold on y'all my house is on fire i'll be right back you know and that's what it is and do it unapologetically and as a leader in my day job My CFO, his wife had a baby in the middle of this pandemic, and he set a boundary very early, like, these are going to be my office hours. Don't ask me to come up in this office. I got a new baby at home and I'm not risking, you know, any germs or anything. So even when we reopen, I'm not going to be there for a while. And that made me feel. And then his next thing was, and tell me what you're going to do. So that left space immediately for me to be able to go, what am I going to do? And then now I can think about it and I can pass that down to my team so that everybody has space to ask for what it is that they need. In my life, I meditate 
I do a lot of affirmations. As I said at the beginning of the show, I have a therapist and an executive coach. So part of my success squad, making sure that my mind is right and that I'm staying on track with the goals I set for myself and stretching myself in those ways. Eventually, I'll get back to being able to exercise and and see my trainer, (laughs) see my trainer again. So, you know, all of that is part of what I have to do to keep myself going. The biggest thing for me is to just, because I suffer with anxiety, I'm pretty open about that. Once upon a time, I suffer with depression, but I've moved beyond that. But anxiety is still a struggle for me. And the thing that keeps me from being anxious is staying on schedule. So my calendar is my lifeline. And whether that's this meeting with you, picking up my daughter from gymnastics at 6.30, calling my mama at 9, whatever it is, it's on the calendar. And if I know if I'm following my calendar, then I'm on the right place and I'm where I'm supposed to be in that moment. I can schedule time for TV. Fridays are my husband, we Netflix and chill on Friday nights and that's on the calendar. And so don't ask me to do nothing else because that's my time with him to do that. We binge something or we watch something. So I'm scheduled that way and that makes me feel secure. It allows me to be present so that I'm not feeling as stressed. So that's how manage those things Mm. oh incredibly helpful some years ago i've always been a you know list of things that i have to do and that list gets really long Mm -hmm. but i came to develop an approach to the list that wound up being really really helpful and it is that everything that i have to do ad hoc requests a lot of things come at me in a lot of different ways and i just will put it on a list and if it's something's not on the list i don't worry about it yeah. I don't worry about it. And it, it seems like a small thing, but you think about the things that oftentimes we look at the end of our day, oh, I forgot to do this. I didn't get to that. Did I do this? Did I do that? And so you, you can kind of end your day with a certain kind of almost fatigue from oh, mm-hmm. boy, all the hours going, I didn't get the things done that I needed to. And so I've learned to say to myself, well, if it wasn't on my list, I guess it wasn't important. Exactly. It wasn't important for me. And I'm saying that to myself, not that whoever's asking, whatever asking isn't important, but I've said either not right now. It allowed me to manage all of the multiple requests that we all get. We are a hyper-scheduled, over-scheduled generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the stuff we heard going to college, time management, time management, time management, mm-hmm. management very outset. Well, let me uh, wrap with you know a question that I ask all of my guests, and I think a lot of us are asking, which is their reasons for hope in light of everything that's unfolding. What are your reasons for hope? I still see so much opportunity for growth and evolution and improvement, even in this moment. So that gives me hope because other people are seeing it too. And definitely my kids, you know, when I don't want to hand off the same raggedy workplace (laughs) that I walked into, you know, I've got teenagers now, my, our college student is starting his internship um, in a few weeks. I want all of them to be psychologically, physically safe, you know, when they go into workplaces. And so the work become my work, you know, to make that happen becomes important. And as I see strides get made, that just continues to give me hope and their energy and their 
desire to go out into the world and make a difference and do good things, that keeps me hopeful. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us. Wish you our work human very, very best to you, your family, your busy life. I know that you're having quite an effect on both the home front and on the business front too. So our very best to you. Thank you. For 20 years, WorkHuman has helped leading brands build cultures of gratitude and human connection. Their solutions work in the best of times, the worst of times, and all the time. Let them work for you in turning isolation into recognition, connection, and celebration. Get up and running in minutes at WorkHuman.com.